0: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings, these are a few of my favourite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favourite things and then I don't feel so bad. Yes, I spotted many of you recognise that song. Of course, it's from the film The Sound of Music. And Julie Andrews is singing about the things that make her feel happy. Things like raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Lovely. Um, But of course, there are some things in the film and in the song that don't make her feel happy. When the dog bites. When the bee stings. Nasty. And there are other words in the English language that produce a mixed response in a group of people. So, for example, if I were to say the words Julie Andrews or the sound of music, that could produce different responses in different people here this evening. Well, tonight we're thinking about the future. The future. Now, those are two words that will definitely produce different responses. I wonder, is the future one of your favourite things? Well, for some of us, it probably is. Some of us are excited about the future. It's one big adventure. It's like a huge, big, empty space for us to fill up with our plans and our hopes and our dreams. Or a blank piece of paper for us to chart out our futures and maybe even the futures of other people as well. And then to sit back expectantly, watching to see if it all comes true. The strange thing is, it doesn't seem to matter very much whether you're religious or not. You can still think in exactly the same way. So the atheist might say, there is no God, so the future is mine to control. I will shape my own destiny. Tomorrow belongs to me. But sometimes Christians can end up living just like the atheist. Tomorrow belongs to God, we say, and God's on my side, and so he's going to help all of my plans to succeed. And then the Christian and the pagan can confidently plan their futures in exactly the same way. For others of us, though, the future is an ominous place. We prefer not to think about it at all, if we can help it. Perhaps in the past we were just like those first few people, that first group, we were convinced by success after success that we could confidently plan our own futures and chart our course. Until one day, completely out of the blue, disaster struck. Something happened that left us stunned. Something completely beyond our control. Perhaps it was a relationship we thought was going so well, and it just fell to pieces. Or perhaps we, or or someone we know, someone we love, went through some terrible hardship, some great pain, and we just couldn't understand it. Our prayers went unanswered, and so now we think about the future very differently. To us, it's, it's like a vast and powerful river. Its course is set, yes, there will be twists and turns, but who knows where the final destination will be. It could be good, or it could end badly. But there's nothing that I can do. Whatever difference I might try to make is just a ripple. I might as well just go with the flow. And again, our religion doesn't seem to make very much difference. An atheist could say, it's not surprising we can't. Plan the future. I mean, we're a microscopic species living in the midst of a vast, chaotic, random, meaningless, purposeless universe. Why should we think that we can think of the future? And yet, Muslims, surprisingly, can think in exactly the same way. I was talking to a taxi driver last week, and he told me the future belongs to God. It has nothing to do with us whatsoever, and even to think about the future is presumptuous. It's strange, isn't it? But sometimes Muslims and atheists and maybe even Christians as well can all think about the future resigning themselves to exactly the same way of thought. Que sera, sera we say. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Both of these attitudes, are wrong. And in today's passage, both of these attitudes will be challenged. To the first group, God says, there's no use thinking that you can control your future. There's so much that you just cannot know. And for the second group, God has words of comfort. Don't despair. The future is not out of control. There are some things that you can know for certain. And so this evening, we're going to piece together a Christian view of the future. And we'll do so under three headings. You've got them on the handouts there. Firstly, what we don't know. Second, what we do know. And therefore, what we do now. So firstly, what we don't know you look again at chapter 4, and we'll read verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if... The Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. James here is speaking to the businessmen and the entrepreneurs in his church. Above all, these are the people who love to think about the future. And understandably so. It's the way they make a living. Verse 13. Today or tomorrow, they say, we'll, we'll fly up to Hong Kong or down to Singapore and we'll stay there for a year, trade, and we'll make a profit. For them, the future is a vast, undiscovered country ready to be carved up. Every year brings 365 more opportunities. And every day must be planned meticulously in advance to make sure they maximize total profit. It makes sense. But James is not pleased with them at all. Verse fourteen. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What's James's problem here? Is it somehow sinful to make a profit? Well, no, of course not. Not if you go about it honestly. It seems to me uh, that all these business wants is a fair return for all their hard work. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly not wrong to be a capitalist. In fact, making a profit can be a sign that we're being efficient and that we're not wasting resources. And so a healthy profit can be a reflection of, are faithfully looking after that little portion of the world that God has given us to look after. Okay, if making a profit is is okay, then is James saying that it's wrong to plan ahead? Well, again, the answer is no, exactly the opposite. The Bible says, in many places, it's the wise man who plans and prepares for the future. And the Bible has very strong words For those too lazy to even bother to care about the future. Just listen. I'll read you a part from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep, little sleep? little slumber, little forwarding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like an armed man, and scarcity like a bandit. The Bible says that even the ant has got enough sense to store up food for the future. And so, on the full authority of Scripture, I say to you today, that if you are not sparing any concern for your future finances, then you, Are more stupid than an ant. But again, that is not the problem for these businessmen. For many, many years, they've been planning ahead and successfully negotiating contract after contract. No, the problem is with their attitude towards the future. Verse 16 tells us that they're arrogant. And instantly, James is concerned because there's only one way to be arrogant, and that is to forget that God is the one in charge. Now, it probably wasn't always this way. Perhaps in their early days, fresh out of college, these businessmen were painfully aware of their total inexperience. In those days, they were were forced to depend on God for everything. And they were quick to thank him every time something went well. Well, that's how it used to be, but not anymore. Now, they are completely confident in themselves. Certainly, in the business world, at the very least, as far as they're concerned, they are the ones in charge. And if they're in charge, well, it makes sense that they should get all the praise. Now, even when they look back on the early years of their lives, they don't see examples of God's kindness. Instead, they congratulate themselves. Their own instinctive business savvy. And they look to the future very confidently because now, on top of their own natural brilliance, they have years and years of business experience behind them. In this area of life, they just don't need God anymore. Of course, they wouldn't say it like that, but then they don't need to. We can tell by looking at the way they live their lives. For a start, They don't pray about their futures, about their business decisions anymore. Instead, they just plow ahead confidently, taking for themselves all the credit that God is the one, that God deserves for the successes that he actually grants to them. These men are like balloons. They're puffed up, they're full of arrogance and pride and false confidence. And so James has come along with a sharp pin. It's verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You don't know, says James, what will happen tomorrow. Even your best laid plans cannot be totally relied upon because God is in charge and you are not. And God has the ultimate veto. he can stop any plan dead in its tracks. At any moment, he could say, that is enough, and your heart will never beat again. How can you be so blind to arrogantly plan your future, right down even to the intricate small details, whilst completely ignoring God, the one who holds your your life in the palm of his hand? Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I was talking to some friends last week, and they told me about a Malaysian businessman they knew. He'd just come back from a business trip, and, uh, and his colleagues were expecting to see him at work the next day. But he didn't turn up. They started to get a bit concerned. He, hadn't come by lunchtime, they called him on the handphone, but there was no reply, and so one of his colleagues got in his car and drove off to his house, rang the doorbell, no reply. Went up the stairs, opened the bathroom door, and there he was, lying on the floor, dead, with his laptop beside him. I wonder, what verdict God gave on that man's life. Was he an arrogant man? who boasted about the future and had no thought for God? Or was he a humble man who laid out his plans before God? Perhaps businessmen are particularly prone to boasting about the future. But any of us can do it. So a school child might say, I'm going to work really hard, pass my exams and go to Oxford. An employee might say, I'll put those extra hours in at the workplace and get that promotion. An athlete might say, if I just keep up this gruelling exercise regime, then I can see myself flying to Delhi in 2010 to represent Malaysia in the next Commonwealth Games. Now, it's good to be ambitious. It's certainly good to work hard. But here's the test. Do you ever pray to God about your future? Because if you don't, you're not being ambitious, you're being arrogant. You're puffed up and you urgently need to take James's pin and pop the bubble. Humble yourself before God humbles you. In verse 15, James suggests one helpful tip that we could follow to keep humble as we make our plans. We could use the phrase, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I'll be going out for a lovely dinner after smack too this evening. If the Lord wills, I'll see my parents again in January when they come to visit. Now those words aren't some kind of magic formula. James isn't saying, well, keep on making your own arrogant plans. Just make sure you say the words, if the Lord wills first, and then God won't, won't be upset at all. No, no that's not what he's saying. We're not like the Hindu idol worshippers, are we? We don't treat God like some big lucky charm that will bless all our successes if only we can say the right incantation. Now, saying if the Lord wills is not going to change God, but it might just change us. If you think it would help you to remember God, who's but? Then consider making these words part of your everyday speech. But if you don't think it would help, well then take some other practical steps to keep yourself humble when you plan the future. Otherwise, you sin. Verse 17. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is uh, what we sometimes call the sin of omission. A sin of omission is different, it's the opposite to a sin of commission. A sin of commission is when we do a bad thing that we shouldn't have done. And a sin of omission is when we do, don't do a good thing that we should have done. Yeah. And when we leave God out of our plans, that is a sin of omission. James is speaking to people who are, are busy laying out their plans for the future. And it's people that have the freedom to plan their futures that probably also have the freedom to help other people as well. For example, these business people, they're planning trips off to Hong Kong and Singapore and around Malaysia. I suppose they've probably got a car, and so perhaps they could give a lift to some elderly people, a couple perhaps that couldn't otherwise get to church on the Sunday. Or uh, perhaps in between business trips, they could um, come early in the mornings and look after the creche at Smack 1 before they come and hear the sermon at Smack 2. Well, unfortunately, it's often these very people that are the most busy. I've been in Malaysia for over a year now, and I never fail to be amazed at how busy people always seem to be. And so I think that here we especially need to be warned about sins of omission. Because after all, if the devil can't make you sin, then he'll make you too busy to do any good. James has now confronted those who arrogantly boast about the future. But he knows that there are others in his church who don't act this way at all. They'd love to be able to offer transport to others or help in any way that they could. But they can't. They are the poor and the oppressed. We met them earlier in the letter, being mistreated by the powerful, the wealthy and influential. And these poor Christians are well aware that their lives could end tomorrow and they're tempted to despair because when they look to the future, all they can see is injustice. All the future holds for them seems to be hardship. And it's people like these who need to be reminded of the things that we do know for certain. And so James takes out his DVD of the future and he he loads it up, sticks it in the drive and he presses fast forward. And up on the screen, we have day by blurry day, whizzing past. We don't know what's happening in these future days. And it keeps whizzing by until suddenly the image becomes crystal clear. Judgment day has arrived. And James presses play down to normal speed and invites these oppressed Christians to watch with him, to watch the fate of their evil and wicked oppressors. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, James gives us the commentary. What we do know. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. We do know that judgment is coming. It's a terrifying scene, but it would have been comforting to the oppressed Christians who are watching. As they see God judging their enemies, they understand that even now, God is watching. He knows exactly how his people are being mistreated, and they see that God is fair. The rich in their lifetime, had condemned the poor. Now, God will condemn the rich to the eternal misery that they deserve. The Bible tells us that the love of many is a root of all kinds of evil. And their crimes all seem to stem from the love of many. Every detail of their lives points in that direction. Just look at how they treat others to get rich. In verse 4, Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They cheated their workers out of their wages, even though they needed them day by day to feed themselves and to feed their families. This is a terrible sin. The Old Testament emphasised this point and gave a special law to make sure this kind of thing wouldn't happen. i read you. Uh, one of God's commands from the book of Deuteronomy. For your notes, it's Deuteronomy chapter 24. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the foreigners who are in your land, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. But these landlords don't care about their harvesters and they don't care about God's law either. Foreigners are particularly vulnerable in a strange new country and God therefore commands us to take extra special care of them. But some people actually go out of their way to target and exploit immigrants. They'll even deny them their basic human rights in order to make a bigger profit for themselves. I came across an example of this just last week. I was talking to A boy I met, his name is Aymin, and he's come over to Malaysia. He's been here for just over a year, and uh, he's from Myanmar. He's working in a Chinese restaurant, and he's earning money, which he then sends back home to his family. On his first day at work, his boss stole his passport. And he said to Aymin, you can have it back in three years' time, provided you keep working for me every day until then. Now, Aymin has no family look after him and he doesn't know the legal system here. There's nothing at all that he can do. In fact, if his employer is anything like the people that James is writing about, then even if in did try appealing to some kind of court, he probably wouldn't get very far at all. Because these rich landlords have not only cheated their workers out of their wages, they've even cheated them in the legal system. Verse 6. You have condemned You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And not only do they actively oppress their workers, they commit sins of omission as well. They hoard their wealth instead of using it to help others. But while they're busy, enjoying their luxurious lifestyle, their employees are crying out to God. And God is listening. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now in the Bible, the title, Lord of hosts, is used specially of God to remind us that God is the commander of all the hosts, that is, all the armies of the angels and the heavenly beings. God is the almighty saviour and protector of his people. He will come to rescue them and their enemies will not escape. I'm told that at the end of the Second World War in Europe, the Nazis uh, were in retreat and the Allies were storming through Europe and they came across the concentration camps. Well, the Nazi soldiers were terrified and they tried to disguise themselves as the Jewish prisoners by dressing up in the prisoners' clothes. But it didn't work. They were quickly spotted because the Nazi soldiers were the only ones that were well fed. In the same way, The Lord of hosts will weed out all those who have fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter, who have laid up treasure in the last days, gold and silver that ultimately will corrode and forever stand as a testimony against them, eating their flesh like fire. So that's the second point. We don't know what will happen tomorrow, but we do know that judgment day is coming. It will be a day of horrendous suffering for everyone who oppose Jesus and his church. They will get exactly what they deserve. Until then, what should we do? Well, even in the face of terrible injustice, we must not attack the world, and we must not despair. Instead, we must be patient. Verses seven to twelve. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, brothers, so that sorry, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under, under condemnation. Now, we must be patient. Patience sounds like such a passive, weak thing, doesn't it? But it's not. When people are hurting us, it takes real strength to be patient. When we're under pressure, it's the easiest thing of all to retaliate, whether in speech or in action. But for Christians, that is not an option. Christians follow Christ. When Jesus was falsely accused, he didn't fight back. Even when they nailed him to a cross, Jesus was patient with them. Oh, he could, if he wanted, have called down all the hosts of the armies of heaven to fight for him and set him free. But he actually displayed far greater strength than that. He prayed for his enemies. He didn't take justice into his own hands, because he knew that he could leave judgment to God. And we must do the same. In our prayers of intercession later today, we're going to be praying for the church in Croatia. And you may remember that in 1991, a terrible civil war broke out in that country. Within this first six months, 10,000 people had died, hundreds of thousands had fled, and and tens of thousands of homes had been destroyed. Thankfully, the violence ended in 1995. But we can only imagine how many cases of injustice and violence occurred during that war that have just never yet been dealt with justly. The Christians in that country need to hear verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Whenever they think back to the horrors of that war, they will need great strength to be patient. They need to remember that Jesus is coming back, that evil will not go unpunished, and that everyone who stands against Christ and his church will be destroyed. They also need to hear verse 9. Do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged behold the judge is standing at the door yes we can look forward to the last day with confidence there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus died on the cross we will be perfectly safe on that day and yet Christians too will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and each of us We have to give him an account for the way that we have lived our lives. We must be ready. When we're treated unfairly, we must not retaliate against our enemies, and we must not take out our frustrations on one another either, grumbling against each other. The judge is watching. We must be patient. Well, now we know what patience is not. Patience is not retaliating. Patience is not grumbling, and positively, what is it? Well, we have verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have seen the steadfastness of, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What does Christian patience look like in practice? Well, it looks like the prophets who kept speaking. Like Job who kept believing. If you know the story of Job, you'll know that he suffered great loss in his life. In a short space of time, his property was all stolen. His children died in a terrible accident. He caused an awful skin disease. His friends accused him of sins he'd never even committed, and his wife told him to curse God and die. He was in pain, he was confused, he was angry with God all at the same time. But even so, he never turned away from God. Now Job was just an ordinary person like any one of us here today. How was he able to keep on trusting God day by day when his life was so unbearably awful? What's the secret? Well, it's just what we've been seeing today. Job knew how to think about the future. He didn't know what would happen tomorrow. But deep down, he knew that in the end, God would bless. Because God is compassionate and merciful. Just as God watched over his prophets in the Old Testament, just as God watched over Job, so too, He watches over us today. I don't know what what successes you've had in your life which should have tempted you to go astray from Christ. And I don't know what difficulties you've gone through in life that could have crushed and destroyed your faith. But I do know this, that if you're still a Christian, despite all the things that you've gone through in your life, you are blessed. Behold, said James in verse 11, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. God has kept you safely in Christ all the way through your life and he's doing it because in the end he's going to take you into glory. And there's no blessing in the universe that can compare with that. We know for certain that we are going to heaven because God has promised and God is completely trustworthy and so we should be too. And perhaps that's why James finishes this passage with one last command, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. God is a God of truth. When he speaks about the future, as he has been this evening, we can trust him. If he says it will happen, it will happen. And so we should be trustworthy too. We don't need to back up our promises with oaths. We don't need to swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Our yes should mean yes. And our no should mean no. Just as it does with God. So, to conclude. The future belongs to God. We must not arrogantly plan our lives as if we were in control. We don't know what will happen tomorrow because God has not told us. We can't know. We may not even have a tomorrow. But God hasn't left us entirely in the dark. We do know that Jesus is coming back. We do know that the wicked will be destroyed. We do know that we who are waiting for him will enjoy his blessing forever. And so for now, We must be patient. We must not retaliate or grumble. Instead, we must keep on believing and keep on speaking the truth. Because when Christians look to the future, we look not with arrogance, not with fear, but with hope. Everyone else in the world that you meet has either false hope or no hope. But we, of all people, have a certain hope. Certain, because God has spoken, and God always speaks the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy, and that as the Lord of history, you tell us everything we need to know about the future in order to love and serve and obey you fully. Whatever disasters or successes we might meet in the week ahead, We pray that you would help us to stay humble and to be patient. Please help us to keep trusting in you and loving one another as well as we wait for the day when Jesus will return. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.